Yeah, it says we're live everywhere, so we're live everywhere. Let's go ahead and start. Okay, so you say we're live everywhere. Are you keeping track, young lady? Do I have to do anything? Do I have to wait for a thumb? No, I already gave you. Oh, you already gave me a thumb? Okay, I, that's, a, that's a redundant thumb is what I, you just, just did. I was checking with Lori to see if we're live. Okay, and she says we are alive? I think she's not looking at her phone. Okay, that's also very likely because she <laughs> sleeps during most of my talking. Doubt. It's been going on for 31 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Let's see, take, put the, I gotta see what I'm doing here. I'm out of practice, aren't I? I have no idea. Put the glasses on top of the head. I think that's what I try to do. Take your drink of water. Uh, oh, my drink of water, yeah. Okay, before we get started here, uh, I just want to talk really quickly on this COVID. COVID, uh, this uh, Delta variant, is obviously the transmissibility they think has increased the binding affinity to the ACE2 receptors they believe is significantly more potent uh, than the, the original very or the original uh, pathogen and and now uh, things seem to be getting a little bit more heated again we're getting another wave it's a worldwide disease and so that could it could easily be an end of the days sign because Christ said when you see world war and a worldwide disease and the nation of Israel the the capital of Israel being Jerusalem the Golan Heights all of those things have happened in our lifetime pretty much now, do we have a warning from Lori or something she says it's working on her phone not my pad okay I don't know what's up with that I don't know that either that's technologically out of my realm me too Okay, so anyway, just watch what Israel is doing. Israel obviously is the center of everything as we go down the stretch here. So let's pay attention to Israel and, and see what we can find out. It is now a time to watch the nation of Israel. Ah, so September the 12th, uh, 2021, lecture discussion number 148 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 1 Kings 23. And we are back, uh, all of us. Hi. Hi. Yeah, we're all back, having last been operational August the 8th, and that was lecture number 147. Uh, for those of you who wish to know about such trivial things, uh, we were, uh, Lori and I were able in the interim in our little sabbatical here uh, to reframe and install two exterior doors and uh, beautiful and they came out pretty good i have to admit we've never been able to open that door until i found out why when i tore it out the people that put it in decided to make it very difficult and they left the roller systems off of the sliding door so <laughs> and then they, the one that was somewhat operational was crammed up into a place where it couldn't open so you had to have super human physicality to get it open all the time after 30 years we finally got it fixed and so we re reframed installed two exterior doors we finished the rock work facade rock work facade what did you think of that Beautiful. it looked pretty good doesn't it okay well it surrounds the door mm -hmm. we set a beam structure uh, surround on the new front door that was nice. that was fun and then we recited the south entry wall uh, and then upgraded the heating system downstairs to, in order to augment this beautiful $125 wood stove that's sitting here. And uh, and then we gathered up all the debris and we took it to the dump. To the dump, to the dump, to the dump, dump, dump. Right? And all of that while I, participating, passed seven more kidney stones. Yeah. Which was, yay, we huzzah, right? All that we got left to do to get ready for winter is stack up a cord of firewood, and then we can sequester ourselves uh, uh, for the long, dark, cold, bitter that is coming. In the interim, I have letters. Real letters. Look here, look here. This is amazing. You, people doubt me. They say, oh, you just write your own. No, a real handwritten letter. But this one is every bit as cool. I actually have two of these, but I won't be dealing with one of them. This one is typewritten on a typewriter. On a typewriter, isn't that cool? And of course, then I have an email-y thingy, too. So there's also one of those. So uh, 
And whenever I see handwritten and typed on a typewriter letters that I suggest might betray the mean average age, that's a redundancy, right? The mean age demographic of the vast Internet cliffside audience right there. Okay, one is from Jacob, and he's in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and uh, he's written before, and I haven't had time to really uh, get into it, but now we're going to do that. And the other, another one from Val Jo, because she, Bakersfield, and she uh, writes uh, quite consistently. And, and then, of course, uh, the email from Chad in Florida. And uh, all contain applicable questions to our current project or subject. And this, we're still in this board here, so I keep bringing it out. It's not been erased yet, but we're still dealing with these topics that are on there in a way that might be uh, obscure or obfuscated might be better. Surreptitious, pick a word, get a thesaurus. But at any event, that's what I'm doing still. And, and uh, they, these letters, again, are applicable uh, to our current subject as tributarily as it might be. And such is the apex advantage of my discursive mythology, methodology. Any and all questions that come in, I can, I can beat them to fit into the current topic because of my system, right? Eventually or immediately applicative. So that's really a wonderful thing that I have devised in my older dotage here. Hang on. Hang, hang on. on. Did we drop? How many, how many, uh, Letters do you have on this board so far? I have uh, all the A to P. Okay, so that's probably enough to cover any question that anybody that, ever asked. That's exactly my point. So that's why you're, okay, okay. That's exactly the system. I see your method now. That's right, good. I'm, I'm glad after, what has it been, 15, 20 years now? Yeah. We've been at this? Finally figured it out. You finally figured it out. That's, that's really wonderful. In any event, today will be the sixth installment of the Immortality of Animals. I've done five previously. And that, of course, is the test. Do, can you pass the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 22? Notice I said 22. I haven't got to 3.22 yet. I've stopped at 3.21. I will get to 3.22. That's the, that's the answer to the test. And, and it's repeated, of course, again in uh, Ecclesiastes 12. But uh, probably this is going to continue to a seventh uh, installment at minimum. The uh, the I'm sorry, excuse me, I can't talk today. The immortality of animals is an imposing undertaking. The amount of cumulative information that the Bible provides is a very heavy list. And you, there's so many, I don't want to know what to call it, concealed, if you will. There's, it's just not at the surface. You have to, you have to look at it and figure it out. It's almost like a puzzle, a great difficult puzzle. And hopefully I've brought some of that to light so far. The angelic, the animal, and the human. Those are three kingdoms. All in those kingdoms have sentience. They all have consciousness. And that causes the why questions. Very quickly we have why questions come from the fact that I have sentient, conscious, angelic, animal, and human beings that have been created. Why did God give his living creatures as he defines living? He has the definition of living. We do not have a valid definition of living. We have not experienced living yet. We are in a death condition waiting to be revealed as physical death. He describes us as being in a living condition. How does he define living? Angels, animals, and humanity, his living creatures, that we all have consciousness. Why do we have consciousness? Why do we have immortality? Why do, why is there eternal existence? But specifically to our topic, uh, mostly today, why are animals immortal? Now, I recognize people disagree with that. But uh, I think, again, that the evidence for it is irrefutable. There's so much of it. How do you discount all of that? But why, then, are animals immortal? Living beings described as having the breath of the spirit of life from the living God, the nefesh, ruach, shaya. That's, that's inside of every animal that, that, that he has so deemed. And why, why do we have three realms similar, similar, seemingly disparate? They're really different. The angelic realm is significantly different from the animal realm, which is significantly different from the human realm. But yet they have this shared immortality. They have other shared aspects. Again, consciousness, existence, will. 
But there's this disparate realm that has all of this interconnectivity. What is his point? What's his meaning? Why has he done this? Why has he made three of these realms? And they have an order to them. The angelic came first, the animal came second, and the human came third. And the humanity has uh, has authority over the animal. Why did he do it this way? The why of the animal questions includes the death of animals, the returning to dust of the bodies of animals. The bodies of animals return to dust. Why do animals die? It would seem unfair. They did nothing. We've discussed that a little bit at length, but there's more to that question. Why do animals age? We understand why we decay over time. Death does a lot of interesting things. One, it focuses the mind on what comes next. And that is a valuable salvation opening, if you will, for everyone. Everyone who is about to die, especially slowly, they, they reconcile themselves with the fact that they're dying. But they also have to ask, is this the end of me? God is definitive. It is not. What comes next is your destination, not your existence. So... Why do angels, I'm sorry, why do animals age? Angels do not age. Angels are not subject to uh, physical death. So why humanity and not the angelic? Are angels subject to death as God defines it? Absolutely. Matthew 25, 41. They die as he defines it. But we have this aging system and this body going to dust, this separation. And these are, again, not simple issues. They require substantial investigation. Animals and mankind die the same. Let me explain that as many as I can because we've missed so much time here. The bodies of animals and the bodies of men both go to death. The dust. That's the same. The spirits both go to him who gave them. That's the same. That's what Ecclesiastes uh, 3.18-21 through 21 is saying. Men and animals have the same process. Animals and mankind die the same. Man has no advantage. He has no preference, no superiority in his physical death. God has no partiality. He describes himself as having no partiality. Romans 2.11, Colossians 3.25. The death of animals and the death of humanity, there is no partiality. It is the same. Flip the page. I used to have Little pictures here, smiley faces, and are you awake? Is anyone awake? Is anyone home? I, just, I haven't done that since we have a camera. <laughs> okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 20, demonstrate that the death of the body of animals and mankind share the exact same process. Why did he do that? He, he did it because omniscience requires it, but you have to figure out, we have to figure out why is this required? Why is this so? Why is this a fundamental truth that we must understand? Again, Ecclesiastes 3.18, this is a test. Can you pass this test? Do you even know what the test is? Why is it so crucial, this test? Such wisdom hidden here. Again, God has no partiality when it comes to the death of animals and the death of humanity. And yet the angels seem to have escaped it, though they have not, as he defines living and death. Okay, here we go. Today it's just throwing things at the board that's already filled up uh, day. Throwing things at the dry erase board time, I guess would be better. So we're going to start out reading Valjo's question. Hi, Valjo. First, she asked, can you recommend a good commentary for me? And I, I just had the same thing I said to Chad. Find Clarence Larkin, Dispensational Truth, find Fruchtenbaum, Footsteps of the Messiah. Start there. In Fruchtenbaum, start with the appendices. That is a fundamental. He is brilliant on the fundamentals. He does. Everybody struggles. No one gets it all. So always be conscious of that and, and be able to question them. Don't, don't worship any commentary. Okay, this is what she asks. Why didn't the faithful angels know that Jesus was God until after he had expelled Satan? She's talking about Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. Why didn't the faithful angels know that Jesus was God? Now, my position is, is they didn't know. 
And that's why they minister to him. How do you minister to him? Well, of course, you minister him by believing him. And so you might take the position that they didn't believe who he was. Why didn't they believe who he was? It seems obvious to us, but it isn't, is it? The church today doesn't even recognize who he is. They subordinate him. But they told the shepherds in the fields that he was born. That's right, but they did not know that this is somebody that his... his they didn't know he was God. They did not know he was God. And why didn't they know? If I'm right, and of course, yeah, yeah, I mean, come on. Do we have to? Go? We don't even go there anymore. It's it's already been established. So the short answer to Val's question is Psalm 10:1. And that is, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? That's the question of Psalm 10. One. And Psalm 10 is an incredible psalm. Uh, it, it, so he not only hides himself from us, he hides himself from the angels. Well, I'm absolutely going to make that point, and that's what uh, Valjo was asking. How come they didn't know who he was? Hmm. Obviously, Satan did not know who he was. He went through this rigmarole of transporting him all over the place, and Satan has the most wisdom, so it's easy to extrapolate that the angels, who are not as smart as he is, Ezekiel 28. He's filled to the brim with wisdom. If he can't figure it out until he is cast away, then he figures it out. I always ask that question, how far did Christ send him? How long did it take him to get back? Because he sent him a long way. Obviously. He could send him to the outside edge of, of, of creation. And by the way, the creation is, is not infinite. The creation is finite. God is infinite. He holds the creation in his in his hand. You can't even see it. So the answer, the short answer is Psalm 10.1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The key question in my most humblest of humbler opinions, I have to say that carefully, uh, is the second. What do I mean by that? Why do you hide, O Lord? That's what I mean. Why do you hide, O Lord, in times of trouble? The Lord there is the YHVH. That's the sacred name of God. That's the four letters. That's the ineffable. That's the trans... uh, uh, ah. The tetragrammaton. I started to say transfiguration there. I've caught myself. Gosh, this idiocy is coming faster than I was expecting. (laughs) This is the name of God that was uttered aloud during Yom Kippur, the one time that it is uttered aloud. Once, during Yom Kippur, the nation of Israel would say this name and they would fall on their faces. Does that sound familiar? When the name of God is said, the nation of Israel would fall on their faces. So think about John 18, 5 through 6, right? Jesus says that he is the I am that I am. That is the, that is the ineffable, that is the sacred name of God. That is the YH, the unpronounceable. That is the name that is said only once in Yom Kippur. Now eventually the, I don't know what to call it, the apocryphal explanation of why Israel does not know this name anymore is that the band and the singers started yelling and singing way too loud and no one could hear the name anymore and it died away. Now that wouldn't surprise me because we're watching that occur in our churches today where the singing is the sole function of the church. And there is no, there is no gospel. There's nothing of significance being said in most churches. I'm ranting. I'll stop. But Jesus says he is the I am that I am. And that, of course, is Exodus 3.14. And the army that came to deliver him, not betray him, deliver him, capture, if you want to think of it that way, but actually they're delivering him. And he's allowing that delivery. All of that army fell to the dust on their faces, every single one. That includes Judas, who has Satan inside of him at the same time. So now Satan has got two ideas of who this might really be. huh? But it came over a, it's a, it did not come immediately. He responds very quickly. That is why he threw the 30 pieces of silver and tried to stop the uh, Christ from being crucified. Now, uh, that's another story. Uh, the I am that I am is thought by the Jewish th- theologians to infer 
that he was, he is, and he will be. That's what they will say it means. He was, he is, he will be. And Christ, Christ declared himself as being in absolute authority over time in Revelation 1.18 and said, I was, I am, and I will be. And they say, the Jewish theologians, that this is beingness. And he is the being. He is being itself. He, therefore, he's the source of all beings. That would include the angels, the animals, and the humanities. And he hides himself. Uh, Psalm 10.1. Why does he hide himself? And if when you realize that he's hiding himself, that requires that we understand all of Numbers 4 and all of Exodus 25. But for today, we're not going to do all of Numbers 4 and all of Numbers 25. That's Val Joe's homework assignment. Mm-hmm. Or any of you others that are interested in this. And that specifically is the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we'll focus on, just that part. There's also the entire tabernacle that has to be disassembled and reassembled and all of these all of these uh, systems that God has put into place and all of them have incredible meaning and you can find them in the New Testament just as I did with the I am and the falling on your face and the YHVH and, and all of that. You see, when the Ark of the Covenant moves through Israel, through the earth, when Israel, the nation of Israel is moving, they have to move the Ark of the Covenant. It has to be covered. The Ark of the Covenant has to be covered. And it must be covered with the veil. Numbers 4, 5. Got to be covered with the veil. The Ark of Wood that is there, and of course the wood is overlaid. Now wood is always a picture of humanity and symbolism. The wood must be overlaid with pure gold, and pure gold, of course, is the deity. I've said this many, many times in my so-called career. So I have humanity overlaid, completely covered. There is no wood visible at all. It's completely The poles are completely covered that carry it. The wood is covered by gold, so the deity is covering the humanity, and that's the hypostatic union, that, uh, that's uh, the, the greatest of all mysteries, the incarnation, 1 Timothy 3.16. Christ is the ark. The ark is a type of him. He is the anti-type. Anti-type meaning he is the fulfillment. And it has to be covered. It has to be hidden. So why does it have to be hidden? If you answer that, then Val jo is on her way. And now you can handle uh, Psalm 10.1. And, and it has three coverings. When the wa- ark, and I'm going to put it this way, walks among his creation... Because he is the ark, which is in a fallen state. His creation is in a fallen state. It's got to be covered with three coverings. One of those is the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from, uh, uh, separates the ark from, and only again the the high priest can go in with with a rope around his leg, right? Why is that? It's all the same question. The sons of Kohath were assigned to carry the ark. They did not they did not put it in a position to be carried because that's the sons of Aaron that were doing that. So I have Aaron and I have Kohath. The, the Kohath sons carry the ark, but the sons of Aaron were given the responsibility to disassemble the tabernacle and to get the ark ready to be moved. If, however, the Kohathites or ites were to touch the holy thing. They called it the holy thing. If they touched any part of the holy thing, what happens to them, Numbers 4.15? They die. You can't touch the holy thing. And it's completely covered so that you can't touch the holy thing, but it did happen, right? Jesus is the holy thing, Luke 1.35, 1 Timothy 3.16. Notice that the obvious is obvious. How's that for profound? Jesus Christ is the pure gold that completely covers the wood. Unfortunately, that is lost today. His his godhood completely covers the wood. In the Chalcedon, I believe, council, they made the point. It might have been Nicene, but they made the point that the humanity is subordinated, is subject to the authority of his deity. We have lost that today. That is a fundamental truth. It is clearly obvious, and yet for some reason the church does not want to teach it. Makes me mad. I will rant. 
His infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotence in absolute authority to humanity at all times. And failure to com- comprehend this fundamental truth given in Numbers 4, Exodus 25, Exodus 26, Exodus 3.14, John 18.6. Failure to know this is disastrous. It's destructive. It's ruinous. And those are adjectives that describe the condition of the contemporary church of our time. With respect to this truth, most churches today invert the ark. They overlay the pure gold with his humanity. They try to take the wood and cover up the gold. That's what they have done. They want to see Christ as this failed, flawed, crying, weeping, scared, afraid to die. I mean, it's absolute nonsense, and it cannot be defended, and it is blasphemy and heresy. And they make it much worse, of course. They, they have the wood be corrupted, so there's rotten wood that they're covering. So they, they make impeccable, in other words, sinful. And I could continue full-throated ranting, but, but for today, to answer Val Joe, Christ God, the being, hides himself when he is moving in an environment that is contaminated with sin. So, is there an environment that is not contaminated in sin in the creation? No, there's not. All of creation groans, Romans 8.22. Heaven and earth, all created things suffer a shared misery. All environments are contaminated. He has no place to go. And that's why he hides himself. That's why he's covered. Revelation 12 demonstrates the conflict that's in heaven, as does Job 1, Job 2, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, Job 38, 7, Jude 6, Jude 9, Genesis 6. Those of you who think, well, he can, he can walk around freely in heaven, he can't. Everything is contaminated. Why would God, Jesus God, hide himself from his angels? That is an excellent question from Baljo. Why does he hide himself from mankind? He seemingly withholds, suppresses information. He then reveals it. He releases his incredible truth when the time is perfect. He waits. Very frustrating, I know. We suppose that waiting is hiding, and that's not incorrect, but waiting is also waiting. And that's the reason he waits, is because he's waiting. Uh, again, I get big money for this kind of stuff. You can tell by my shoes. His waiting allows for something. Waiting proves something, and that's the key element. It's proving something is true. Uh, he puts a veil. He covers himself. It's absolutely necessary. Why is it necessary that he do this? It isn't arbitrary. He doesn't say, well, I don't feel, feel like letting anybody know who I am. But he does that all the time, doesn't he? Don't tell anybody. They tell somebody anyway. He knows that. He's infinite and omniscient God. He's outside of time. He knows what you're going to do. doesn't cause it. Omniscience is not causation. Waiting proves something. And obviously existence is involved in this. Also free will, mercy. Hiding, waiting, attacks the Ezekiel 28:16 lie, the Genesis 3:14, I'm sorry, 3:4 lie, the Job 1, 9 through 11 lie, all the same lie. And that's what he's doing. He's attacking the lie. Obviously, omniscience knows, duh, the exact number of the redeemed. Omniscience knows, duh, every name in the Lamb's book of life. He wrote the names. He is the one who remembers all things. Please remember me. Again, he also knows uh, everyone who will receive the white stone and the hidden manna with the name that no one knows. He also has a name that no one knows but him. So, So, again... He knows who is not written as well as he knows who he wrote. He knows who is missing and who is not. But knowing is not causation. And that is what he is proving. One of the things. Okay, must move along. Hopefully everyone understood how Valjo's question about the angelic realm, blindness to the identity of Christ, though it was temporary, how that compares to the blindness of Israel, Romans 11, 25 through 29. I have two blindnesses, right? And how that meshes nicely with the immortality of animals. So you have to ask the question, how is it that the immortality of animals and the hiding himself, how do those things connect? So now Jacob's question. <coughs> Excuse me, I heard. 
Um, he writes this. Being God-built, I will assume they at New Jerusalem, he's talking about the angels, require no elevator certificate. Because I have made the point that there's probably levels here. I, uh, my estimate is 300. If I'm right, then that'll be amazing. I will be difficult to live with for all of eternity. <laughs> so he's kind of referring to that. Be, being God built the New Jerusalem, I will assume they at New Jerusalem require no elevator certificates. But I'm drawn to the conclusion that these that those in the angelic realm have mass and therefore take up space and have weight. Are they typical humanoid stature? And what are their space requirements in order to avoid overcrowding and claustrophobia? That's what he said. I've always assumed that they were made of light energy could, and, and could assume the form related to a particular mission at will and put themselves at any point in space at will. So why elevators? I don't think I said elevators. I hope I said escalators. But if I didn't say escalators, then I usually say ladders. Genesis 28, 12. So for some reason, they need ladders. So how are we going to get from platform to platform? Or will we have the ability to just do it? I don't think so. Because time has not gone away, and God loves time. He loves having us inside of time. Okay, so that's his question. And that might have been difficult to follow if today is your first time listening to Cliffside to a cliffside lecture. Note that this is lecture number 148, after all. So, come on. Jacob from Idaho is referring to the city of New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, Revelation 22. The city of New Jerusalem ends the chaos that is described in Genesis 1-2, the first worldwide flood. The Noadic flood is the second worldwide flood. As you know, I submit that Ezekiel 28-16, Isaiah 14-12-14, provides the information which led to that condition, led to the destruction of Ezekiel 28-12-15, which is a garden. Ezekiel 28-12-15 garden is not to be confused with the Genesis 2-8 garden. Though they have the, they share, they have the exact geographical location. They are identical in location, but not in construction. God's omniscient GPS system is able to reduce the location to an electron. That's pretty good. Our GPS system might get us within a couple hundred feet. Not exact. God's exact is not our exact. Anyway, the Satan ruled Eden and the Adam ruled even Eden were different in composition. One was mineral, the other organic. Adam's Eden was filled also with animals. That's incredibly important to know that. It was filled with animals. How many animals did he name? Lots of animals individually, right? They all had the white stone with their own name on it. And the seas were filled with sea creatures, quick aside, there will be no more seas in the restored earth, Revelation 21.1. The river of life will flow throughout uh, the new city of Jerusalem and probably down into the earth because the earth is still there. It's renewed, Revelation 22.1. And some of you have hopefully concluded, hopefully you've concluded this without me having to drag you into kicking and screaming, that this new city of Jerusalem is going to be what? I have the garden, uh, the mineral garden of Eden, 28 Ezekiel. I have the organic garden of Eden. That's uh, Genesis 2, 1 and 2, actually 2. And now I have the third garden of Eden, which is the New Jerusalem. And who's in charge of that one? Satan was the king of the first one. Adam was the king of the second one. Who will be the king of the third one? Christ himself. He is the second Adam. Jesus Christ himself, 1 Corinthians 15, 46-49, will be in the midst of the third garden, which is the new city of Jerusalem. It's a garden. He likes gardens. What's in a garden? What was in the first garden? Same thing. In the second garden. But what's the difference in the size of the first garden and the second garden? second garden is absolutely huge. 1,500 miles high. 1,500 miles deep. 1,500 miles wide. It's incredible. We should expect that Christ will place the third Eden in the identic position as Eden 1 and Eden 2. Obviously, God has a plan, and he's sticking to it, which explains the buried head of Goliath. See, he does the same thing over and over again until we get it, and we never get it. Okay? 
He explains the buried head of Goliath with what he's doing with the Edens. Christ the second, the last Adam, the perfect gardener, John 20, 15, would return to where he placed Adam. Genesis 2, 8. He made Adam outside, breathed the breath of life in him, and then put him into a spot. Where was that spot? What else is he going to put there? He's going to duplicate the original system, except he's going to expand it. He has to expand it. The new city of Jerusalem will have all three realms in it, the angelic, the animal, the human. Hebrews 12.22, Zechariah 2.4, Revelation 21.27, Hebrews 11.16. They're all going to be there. Again, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles in length, 1,500 miles in breadth, Revelation 21.16. Obviously, the second Adam is going to do what the first Adam was doing. He's going to fulfill it. The first Adam is a type, Revelation 5. The second Adam will fulfill that type. He's the antitype. Except he's going to increase it. He has to increase it. Again, I propose he's 300 levels, and God likes ladders. Genesis 28, 12 through 15, because he's the God of the living, Matthew 22, 32. Matthew 22, 32 clarifies Genesis 28, 12 through 15. Uh, in the context of, of the place of the living. All that live, as God defines living, will be in the New Jerusalem. To repeat, the third garden will be similar to the second garden, but obviously the scope of it, the size of it, is dramatically larger. The dead, as God defines death, Re- Revelation twenty fourteen through 15, will be the alternative, Matthew twenty five forty one. That's the lake of fire. The second garden is going to be like the first garden. It has to be. Why does it have to be? Why can't it be completely different? See, everybody says that hates the immortality of animals. And I, I use that word. I shouldn't say it. Despise? No. They, they, are, they are angry at that doctrine. They do not like the doctrine of the immortality of animals. I want to know why not. But they don't. I read one. Uh, I, I have to read their positions. And it's very difficult to read them. Because I have to know what they think these verses mean, um, and to how to how to refute what. Because I think I know what they mean. I, I, I think they don't, and they don't want to know what they mean, and they mock the position of the immortality of animals. And I want to know why you think like that. I had one guy write. He said I would explain to a four-year-old that his dog goes to heaven. But I wouldn't do that to a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old. Well, if you're going to do it to a 15-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 35-year-old, do it to the 4-year-old. Yeah. You're going to be cruel. Just be cruel. I don't believe God is cruel. So with all of that, Jacob from Idaho wanted to establish the mass, the spatial extendedness, or the length, the breadth, and the thickness of the angels who reside in the third garden. Almost always when I get a question, like, what is the... What is the angel? What is he? How's he? How, how do they work? Whenever that the question of the physicality of angels arise, that's Genesis eighteen one through eight. That's Second Kings six sixteen through seventeen. That's Revelation twelve. That's Jude nine. Hebrews thirteen two. Genesis eighteen eight. All of that is brought to the forefront. <coughs> Let's just look at eighteen eight. So Abraham took butter and milk, and then the calf. Which he had, which he had prepared. Now he actually gave it to a young man to prepare. That's a very important detail. I left it out. And set it before them because there were three. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. The them and the they in that is the angel of the Lord and two of his angels. That's Jesus Christ himself, Genesis 18, 2, 18, 22, 18, 33, and two angels, Genesis 19:1. Abraham brought them food and he saw them eat it. Abraham saw them as three men, Genesis 18.2. I submit Abraham immediately recognized that one of them was the Lord God because he had seen him before, Genesis 14.18-22. That's Melchizedek, Hebrews 5.6.7.1-3. Genesis 19.16 describes the angels that were eating that at later taking Lot and Lot's wife and Lot's daughters by their hands, holding their hands and carrying them outside the city of Sodom. So, what do we got so far? Angels eat. Angels carry people. Genesis 28.12. Both require physicality. You have to be able to see angels, because he did see them as men. It's also a physical process, sort of. It's transduction. 
photons strike the cornea. It travels through to the pupil, the iris, the lens. When the photons hit the retina, photoreceptors convert the light into electrical impulses, which then reach the brain through the optic nerve. The brain accumulates the electrical particles, electrons, organizes them. Finally, the mind, the consciousness, interprets the information and assigns intentionality, which is meaning. So physical process is converted into a spiritual process. It's a great mystery of Genesis 2-7. It's called substance dualism. Anyway, the vitreous humor is also involved. I know this because my vitreous has detached in both eyes, making my vision a joke. Don't groan. <laughs> Little black specks float everywhere. I got, I'm always doing this. Much to the annoyance of the lovely wife. Anyway, point is, yay, a point. Angels can be seen. They can be heard. They sound trumpets. They, that requires air pressure and vibration. Trust me, I know all about that. Sound waves can be felt. Uh, the book of Revelations, chapters 4 all the way through to chapter 16, records the end of the unveiling or the hiding of the angelic realm. We're in this stage right here, the unseen stage time. That's where we're at. We can't see them. We don't hear them. We don't know they're there. They may be here around us. Hebrews tells us that we, we entertain them, but we don't know it. Remember that question from the unnamed Anna? How come we can't see the spirit? We're in a time that as it leaves the body at death. We're at a time where we don't see this stuff. But that ends. Revelation chapters 4 through 16 tell you that's over. The unveiling of the angelic realm occurs. Our time, the unseen time, John 20, 29, will end at the tribulation. You make the case it will end at Ezekiel 38, but it really ends at the tribulation. You don't see angels at Ezekiel 38. You see them at the tribulation, and you hear them. You know they're there. There is no doubt. Everyone will know that there are three kingdoms, the angelic, the animal, and the human. In the tribulation, there will be nobody who denies that. So angels also have swords. They ride horses. Where they get the horses? Second Kings six sixteen through seventeen. They fight wars. Revelation twelve. They're seen. They reflect light. They have physical features. Hebrews thirteen two. They eat. They touch. They attack the daughters of men. Genesis six. They kill human beings. Revelation nine. They clearly have some level of physical capability, which is not yet resolved. We don't really know how this all works. Jacob's question from, from Idaho, right? Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, asks about their limitations. Can they appear at will? How fast do they travel? How does Matthew 22, 30 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 18, how does that fit in this? Mark 12, 25 through 26, how does that fit? Well, the saved will be like the angels of heaven, he says to us. Like, we will be like them. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor given in marriage. That means no divorce in heaven. Because there's no marriage in heaven. See how I fixed that? That's incredible. (laughs) This, of course, has Jude 6, Genesis 6 overtones. That's where they left their estate and they attacked the daughters of men. Having said that, we are changed at the resurrection. We all know that. I hope you know that. The corrupted must put on incorruption. We have a corrupted body, a mortal body. The mortal must put on our immortality, which causes the most obvious of the obvious questions, something I wondered in previously. If the bodies of the saved are changed, how much are our bodies changed? Try to imagine it. Are the resurrected animals also changed? If we're changed... We're a kingdom. How about the other kingdom, the animal kingdom? Matthew 22, 30, Mark 12, 25 through 26, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, again. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, that places the transformation, that tells us about the transformation of mankind. The animals are, are, are announced the transformation of animals. It's Isaiah 65, 25. And I believe also at Balaam. Can we then conclude that the faithful angels will be transformed somehow? We're transformed. The animals are transformed. Are the angels transformed? They are, after all, residents of the New Jerusalem. They're alongside the animals and they're alongside us. 
Well, we be like them and they will be like us. Does like have it? Is it is it a two way street? They we move this way, they move this way. I notice that the demons want to have physicality. Does physicality come at the restoration, at the renewal? You would think that uh, they would be as equipped to experience the New Jerusalem as we are and the animals are. Is that what he's doing? All three groan. All three need repair, renewal, restoration. There is no place that is not contaminated. If anyone remembers, uh, I propose that the female donkey of uh, Balaam, Numbers 22, was changed by Christ. He opened her mouth, Numbers 22, 28. So I want you to define the totality of what that means. He opened her mouth. She was restored. Her intelligence heightened, strengthened. Her speech capability was unveiled. It was displayed. I think that is a small picture of what will happen to animals. I said that before. This, I believe, was a, he, this is a prophecy. So when you're reading the Balaam and his donkey, recognize that that's a prophecy. It's not just an event that actually happened to an actual donkey and an actual person and the two guys are behind him. It is a prophecy of the end times. The transfiguration of the animal kingdom will be astonishing. Remember, we, we always have been told this. The caterpillar metamorphosis um, turns into a butterfly. For centuries, that's been used as an example of the resurrection of the dead humans. Why is it not the resurrection of the dead animal? Of course it is. Do you suppose that metaphor would apply to the animal kingdom? I think it absolutely will. Faithful angels, will they be remade? Because man is what? Genesis 1.26. He is in the image of God. Angels do not have blood. They do not have the image of God. But yet they have some kind of physical system. Does he remake it? We will be like the angels. Is that equality? Will the angels be remade into the image of God? Will all of us be in the image of God? Angel and man. How much changing will infinite Christ accomplish in the twinkling of an eye? Oh, I hope you can answer that question. How much resurrecting will there be? Every theologian notices the crucifixion death of Christ to be a theodicy for the death of animals, which means the suffering of animals. Essentially, those slain for food and as a sacrifice are brought to the forefront. That's the substitutionary sacrifice. And they recognize that as a theodicy. Animals are portraits of the death of Christ. They recognize that. And they, they announce it. But the crucifixion death, as incredible as it is, there is no atonement at death. The atonement comes. The forgiveness comes. Salvation comes with resurrection. So I have to have the crucifixion and I have to have the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrections. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Isn't it obvious that the portraits, the animals of Christ, the theodicies, theodicies, theodic, can't even say the word, theodicy of Christ, they will be resurrected. It's only logical. The type must be fulfilled by the anti-type for the type to be a type. If you're going to declare the animals to be a type, then there has to be a fulfillment that he resurrected. So the type has to be resurrected. Has to be. It must be. It is through the resurrection of Christ that the final transformations occur. All of creation will be renewed. Angels, animals, and human and, and humans. The portraits of his crucifixion will, again, must be concluded. Again, the crucified must resurrect. That's established. It can't be any other way. Crucifixion. Fantastic. Then resurrection, fantastic. Both of them have to be there. Okay, so now more to come on Jacob's left. Now, really fast. I'm doing pretty good, I think. Maybe not. Chad, pastor, thank you for chatting with me on the phone. I actually answered the phone. I've been blessed by the gifts of God. It has given you... Oh, never mind. Much appreciated. I'll find and read the recommendation books by... Are the recommended books by Bollinger and Larkin. And Larkin to uh, Chad is L-A-R-K-E-N. Clarence Larkin, Dispensational Truth. 
Bullinger, he's interested in numerical systems. Now, you'll understand that. I need a better understanding of the cubes in, gener- in Genesis 1-1. I'm eager to learn anything you may send my way. I came up with 10 times 7 times 18 and 666 equals 1260. So, and hearing you explain 10 plus 7 times 9 equals 153, but I still don't understand 3 times 3, but the pattern 333 led me to try the math on 666, and I was amazed to land at 1260. I heard you explain the significance of 17. That sounds like the righteous path to me. And then he goes on. But you get the the beginning of that, huh? It's fantastic. Obviously, Chad wants to know about biblical gematria or numerical patterns. And they have been investigated for centuries, mostly in Genesis 1.1. The seven Hebrew words of Genesis 1.1. There are seven Hebrew words in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, in the beginning, right? God created. Heavens and the earth. That's English. And in the Hebrew, there are seven words. The gematria, what that means is that every Hebrew letter has a corresponding numerical value. So if I got a letter, I got a, it's got a numerical value. So there is a mathematical system here. They add those numbers up. For example, the Hebrew word that is replaces in the beginning, it's a berasnit. Sith. I don't know it. But that word has a 913 totality to it. So when I add up all the letters of in the beginning word, the one word in the Hebrew, it's 913. The second word, Baha, has 203. So I got 913, I got 203. The third word, Elohim, has 86. So that means I have 913, 203, and 86. 913, 203, 86. This is what Chad wants you to know. He wants to know too. But he thinks this is fantastic, and he's right. And that is interesting, because we all have, we all know what 3.14 is. We know that that's pi, right? The sequence 9132386 is inside of pi. If you had a calculator and you kept going, pi, of course, is the uh, is the uh, uh, ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. We all know that. We love geometry. Okay, none of us do really. Okay, maybe me. So anyway, the 9113-20386, that is the the, uh, 136,000, oh no, 136,100,000. It's in pi, and it's 136,10,766 decimal. So if you go 136,010,766 decimals, you get to that digit, 9132036. And they know this, the guys that know this. In case you were wondering, the next three digits that follows the 9132036 is 232. Okay? Isn't this fantastic? Even Terry's awake now. That's incredible. Okay. The sum of the geometry of the, of the seven words of Genesis 1-1 is 2701. Um, but 232 is Genesis 1-3, let there be light. So I have, in the beginning, 913-20386, let there be light, 232. And again, all of the Genesis 1-1 is 2701. If I add up all seven words. 2701, I'm running out of room. 2701 is 73 times 37. And there you go. Isn't that cool? You're all looking at me like, what the? What's he talking about? (laughs) Well, look at it this way. I'll do it this way. 7, 3, 3, 7. So I have a 7. What's that mean? What's the three mean? And then I have the, and then I have it back. I, I, it repeats itself. Seven three three seven. That becomes very important because all of Genesis one one does that. There's this fantastic symmetry in it. So I have the perfect triune God here. Seven three three seven. Eventually, this enterprise will lead to the fine structure constant in physics. So you can't wait for that. I know. Look at your faces. Gosh, gotta have that because. Uh, that's 137. The reciprocal of 137, really, one, 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 
one one thirty seven. How's that? Jacob. Uh, yeah, Jacob. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> she said. Okay. That's the fine structure constant in physics. One thirty seven and its reciprocal one 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 hundred and thirty seven. Pi, of course, is three point one four one five nine two. Okay. Three point one four. I got to make sure I do it right. One five nine two. So let's put that in there. Three point one four one five nine two. Okay. The fine structural constant in physics. If you take three squared. 3 squared, 1 squared, 4 squared, 1 squared, 5 squared, 9 squared, 2 squared, and add it all up, it's 137. They figured this out maybe 100 years ago. Maybe, nah, not quite. Probably 50, 60 years ago. The fine structural constant, or fine structure constant, is utilized in calculating the interaction of light and atoms and electromagnetic magnetic energy. And what it does is it gives you a determination of the size and the formation of atoms. Or if you prefer, the entire structure of the universe. That's what the fine structure structure constant does. So you can thank Chad for bringing this up. She already did, Chad. But just understand that for today, the Genesis 1-1 is a mathematically amazing. Its relationship to prime numbers is astonishing. It's stunning. You just get stunned when you see it. Your, your knees wobble when you see what's going on in Genesis 1-1. I'm going to read this from Max Born. If the fine structure constant, the 1-137, were bigger than it really is, we should not be able to distinguish matter from nothingness. It just so happens that the fine structure, structure constant is a perfect position. A perfect number. And our task to disentangle the natural laws would be hopeless, hopelessly difficult. The fact that the fine structure constant has just this exact value, 1, 137, is, is certainty. It is not chance, but itself a law of creation of nature. It is clear that the explanation of this number must be the central problem for atheistic natural philosophy. That's Max Born, the physicist. The mathematician. Finally, everyone's favorite word. Got to move now. A few things to cover. Those who deny the overwhelming biblical evidence that animals are resurrected usually cite Genesis 9.3. Mankind is permitted to kill and eat animals. That's Genesis 9.3. The post-flood world uh, will be a violent place. That's what God ends up demonstrating there. As was the pre-flood world, which was incredibly wicked and evil. The corruption of flesh, Genesis 6.2, was ended, however. Mostly, we still had we still had uh, uh, corruption, but not not like it was in prior to the flood. Fear and dread of humanity would now be on every beast, every bird, every sea creature, everything that moves on the earth. Genesis nine one to nine three is incredibly complicated. Those who reject the immortality of animals, they interpret Genesis nine three to equate animals with vegetation. In other words, they say Genesis nine three says animals are the same as plants. That's what they say 9.3 says. And, and they do this because it says this. God says, I have given you all things now to eat, just as I've given you the green herbs. So they say, oh, see, he gave us all the animals to eat. So he gave us the herbs to eat. So they're the same. Animals, herbs, same thing. They deliberately withhold the next verse, 9-4. They don't give you the next verse because the next verse says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, which is his blood. Leviticus 17, 11-14, the life is in the blood. Pro tip here, guys. Word of advice to those who insist that plants are equal to animals. Plants have no blood. How can you not get that? The Latin word for animals is anima. What does anima mean in the Latin? It means life, means soul. That's why reading that Latin Vulgate becomes very important. These guys read the, these uh, English translations and they get it all wrong. You've got to back up and find out what's the source of these translations. That's why the Vulgate should be included in your studies. The lovely Lori and I were discussing this earlier. Her response was, if plants had equality with animals, let's go ahead and concede that. If we have plants and animals are the same, we would be sacrificing trees on Yom Kippur. Aaron would lay his hands on a watermelon. He'd sprinkle potatoes on the mercy seat. That's what we'd be doing. 
That's not what we're doing. Because the life is in the blood. The animal's anima, soul, life. Blood, life, blood is critical. Abel, Cain, Genesis 4, same thing. Remember Psalm 104, 24 through 31. Living things, great and small, these all wait for you. They wait for you, God. Living things, great and small. Then he says, the psalmist says, you take away their breath of the spirit of life, they die and return to dust. That's Ecclesiastes 3.20, Ecclesiastes 12.70. They're exactly the same structure. You, God, then send forth your breath of life, Genesis 2.7, and they are restored. They use Genesis, or, I'm sorry, 104.24-31 to say that animals are not equal to humanity when it comes to their death and their spirit. Again, living things great and small, these all wait for you. You take away their breath of the spirit of life, they die and return to dust. You then send forth your breath of life, spirit, and they are restored. Psalm 104, 29 through 30 describes the death and the resurrections of animals. That's what it's doing. The absolute opposite of the common interpretation from the academic theologians. Okay, am I ranted enough? Next week, here's your question. When do the animals get resurrected? What's the order? Human beings have a military order, like a parade. You can see this resurrection occurs, and then this one comes, and then this one comes, and then this one comes, and this. So animals, do we have, do they have the same parade? When are they resurrected? Do they follow the same system as the saved? Where did Christ get all of his horses, Revelation 19:14? Did he create new horses? They say he created new horses. But there is no creation anymore. That ended on the sixth day, 131 of Genesis. There is no creation anymore. How did he get those horses? He makes sure there's only one way to get them. And that's resurrection. That's his process. That's his mechanism now. Okay, hopefully I got that done in time.